things by the power of your spirit for the glory of our King. Amen. All right, as you turn to Luke chapter 2, we'll be in a few passages today as we uh, explore this idea of joy uh, through Advent, the coming, the first coming of Christ. I love the title of the devotional that we're using for our Advent readings that Brock and Molly read from uh, this morning, Kevin and Nancy read from last week, uh, the dawning of indestructible joy. But I have to admit, often joy doesn't feel indestructible. A bowling ball, that feels indestructible. Like, how are you going to break this thing? A mountain, if you go hiking on it, that feels indestructible. It feels like it's been here forever. It'll be here forever. A river, we crossed the Mississippi River earlier this week. Like, my gosh, that thing is so old. People have crossed and come up to this river for thousands of years. That feels indestructible. But joy feels very fragile. In fact, sometimes it feels like the evil, the sin, the suffering, the sadness is more indestructible than the joy. As I was beginning to prep this past Monday, thinking about this concept of joy, it, like it dawned on me, like my joy feels very fragile right now. In fact, it's felt like it's been a struggle, not just to find it, but to keep it. It feel, felt fleeting and shallow, and thankfully the Lord was kind uh, to let me take time this week to be reminded of these truths about what makes our joy indestructible. Even more than mountains and rivers and planets and stars, our joy is that permanent. So let's hopefully be reminded together about this indestructible joy that did in some ways really enter the world during this season that we celebrate called Advent, the coming of Christ. Maybe the most famous recording of the Advent of Jesus comes from Luke chapter 2, so Let's begin there in the first verse. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to, the re to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were watching out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all the things that they had seen and heard, which, they, uh, which were just as they had been told. 
the angels appeared to the most unlikely group of people who would become the first eyewitnesses to this miraculous event, this group of shepherds, one of the lowliest group of people selected by God to be visited by an angel to hear, today I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. What was the news? That today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is Messiah, Christ, the Lord. The city of David, Bethlehem, where a Savior was born, who is the Savior? Christ, Messiah, the Lord. Incredible truth. One who is the Lord Christ, Savior, was born as a human being. Right from the start, a picture of the divine and human nature of Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us he did not count equality with God as something to be held on to, grasped. But he laid aside in order to come from heaven to earth and live as one of us among us and to do all the righteous things that we were created to do, but he did them perfectly. And then Philippians 2 tells us to be obedient even unto death, death on the cross. Jesus lives a perfect sinless life as the God-man, truly God, truly man, And at the end of his life, he accomplishes the work of redemption by dying in the place of sinful humanity. This is why Christianity is built on Jesus. This is why we are so devoted to Jesus. There's no one like him. He lived the life we're supposed to live but fail at, and he did it perfectly. And then he dies in our place the death that we should die for our sins because we are guilty. And then he rose from the dead, proving all of his things that he said and did were true. Not, like, none of this could have happened if Jesus, the Savior, Christ, the Lord, wasn't born in Bethlehem as a human baby. If he didn't take on flesh. This is the good news of great joy for all people. That Christ has come to do this. And he has accomplished this work. And then we can get in on it because we're part of the all people We experience this forgiveness, life, and joy, and then we get to share it with others, and they also can get in on it, whether it be our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, or whether it be the Wanchi, the Baiman, the Bonin, the Tibetan Jone, the Yagnobi people. Joy as part of the arrival and work of the Lord, Messiah, Savior, Jesus, is an essential quality to his work. Jesus said in John 15, 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's alive in you. This is what's going to show up in your life. Love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then we saw a few months ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Inexpressible, glorious rejoicing. The good news of great joy that was Jesus coming as Messiah, the Lord and Savior to bring about redemption and establish his kingdom, a kingdom of joy. 
It's good news of great joy because he's bringing joy, a kingdom of joy. So central and essential to this kingdom and the work of the church that we as a church, when we planted the crossing, made it part of our vision statement. What do we desire as a church? We desire all people to enjoy Christ always. What is a description of of the work of the crossing? Do we want to proclaim the gospel? Yes. Do we want to make Jesus known and make disciples? Yes. Do we want to plant churches? Do we want to see the gospel spread to the nations? Yes. But what do we want that to look like as this work takes place, as disciples are made and the gospel is proclaimed? We want it to look like all people enjoying Christ in all circumstances. Just this conglomeration of people that are finding their ultimate joy in Christ for that to be who we are we didn't want to do this work in such a militant strategic way that yeah we got it done but we're miserable because we're grinding ourselves to a stump we didn't want to just be like other religious people that are super religious but they're very unhappy people we want it to lead to the joy that Jesus said that he would provide this is the picture of the future that we're chasing Are the sorrows and griefs of life also present? Yes, but so is the joy. Sorrows are temporary. Joy is permanent. In fact, we want the sorrows to be there because we're honest about what stinks in life. We're not proclaiming a message that, well, if you just trust Jesus, your life is going to be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the time. And we're honest about this really hard. This really hurts. This is difficult. And we want the sorrows and the griefs to be there because we're actually in the lives of people in our city who are suffering. And we're not distant and detached, but we're empathizing and engaged and compassionate. And so as they grieve, we grieve. As they suffer, we suffer alongside of them. But no matter the depths and the degrees of sorrow, they cannot extinguish our joy. And in fact, the sorrow is fleeting as compared to the indestructible joy we are experiencing. If you flip over uh, in John chapter 16, we'll find more and helpful instruction from Jesus on joy. John 16, beginning in verse 16. Here we find Jesus uh, on the last night of his time with his disciples, just moments, maybe a few hours before his arrest and his trial, probably about 12 hours or so before his crucifixion. And Jesus says to his uh, closest disciples, beginning in verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. And they said, "What what is this he is saying a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Well, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another about what I said? A little while you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me? Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come, but she has given birth to a child. She no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. In that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Jesus is, again, trying to prepare them for what's to come, and they are struggling to understand, which is a common theme in the Gospels. And one of the other things Jesus told them was that when the Holy Spirit comes, he would bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus taught. And no doubt, as they would recall these things later, it would make a whole lot more sense. But in the moment, they struggled. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. They carried so much more weight after they experienced them. Ah, that's that's what he was talking about. So he's preparing them for the fact that he's about to die, to be buried. And in a little while, you will not see me, he says. And then he's preparing them for the resurrection. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Part of the reason it was hard to prepare them for his dying and rising is that they had zero category in their minds and hearts for a Messiah who would be crucified like a criminal and then rise from the dead. There were Old Testament prophecies about a triumphant Messiah, and there were Old Testament prophecies about a suffering servant, but nobody put those together as the same person. This was part of God's plan to keep this veiled. And so when Jesus more explicitly talked to them about dying and being raised like he did three separate occasions in the Gospel of Mark, they still didn't get it. And this is why on Sunday morning they were in hiding. They weren't at the tomb waiting for it to happen. They had no idea this was going to happen. So here's Jesus knowing what's going to happen. He's trying to prepare them, knowing that they don't understand now, they will later, the pieces of the puzzle will be in place. But Jesus knows it's coming. He knows the depths of sorrow. He loves them. He wants to help prepare them. And he knows where they're about to feel that you will weep and mourn, he says. But he also knows the exuberant joy coming after that. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Like it's hard to prepare someone for what's coming when you know there's going to be pain. But the pain is not permanent. Like when your kids get shots for the first time. When they're old enough to understand. They're babies, it's fine. They don't know anything. But when they're old enough, little toddlers, you know what's coming. They don't know what's coming. You're like, hey, it's going to hurt for a little while, but then we'll go get some ice cream. Like, here's the pain. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. And they're like, okay. And then they get the shot, and it's a whole different story. And then the second time, when they're a little older, then they remember what the shot was like, and they know, oh, I remember this. This was not fun. And then they really, you find out, do they really believe how good ice cream is? Uh, More than the pain and what they're, they're about to go through. You take a group of athletes before a practice or a season, hey, you're about to hurt, sweat, work really hard, be physically tested, but in the end, you'll be in shape and you'll play great and you'll have some success. Or you might tell yourself before you get up to go do a workout, this is going to hurt, but the fruit of the pain I'm about to put my body through is worth it. Or the example Jesus gave, a woman giving birth. Jennifer and I used to tell ourselves uh, with Abigail on the brink of uh, delivery, or in the early months when this kid wouldn't sleep and we felt like we were part of some kind of um, sleep deprivation torture experiment, we kept saying, like, we know it's got to get better because people have two kids. Like, we know that the joy eventually gets so great that they want to do this again. Because right now we're like, why would you do this again? This is miserable. Jesus, uh, Jesus is saying much the same. A woman gives birth through pain and suffering Part of the curse of the fall, if you remember from Genesis 3, but when the child arrives, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy. He doesn't say the suffering goes away. 
He's saying it pales in comparison to the joy. She's so overwhelmed by joy that she can't remember how much pain she went through. Now, only a mom can really speak to this. Dads, we don't feel the extent of the suffering. We just get the joy. I guess we only suffer to the degree that we empathize and care for our wives. So, you know, wives, you can give a Yelp review of how well your husband's empathize with you when you were suffering the most but for moms they get this more than we do I'm sure it's probably on a spectrum like there's different degrees of pain and suffering and different degrees of joy but don't get lost in analyzing the analogy that you missed the point in childbirth there is pain but once the child arrives there's joy and then Jesus makes a connection with his disciples in him in verse 22 so you also have sorrow now but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Your sorrow, he says back in verse 20, your sorrow will turn to joy. Joy is inevitable. It's coming. Such a solid, confident, bold declaration from Jesus. You will have sorrow, but you will see me again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. We have a joy, not instead of suffering, but a joy that is beyond suffering. A joy that is permanent, rooted in Jesus, that we cannot lose because we can't lose him. Suffering is come and go. Suffering is not eternal, but joy is permanent and eternal. And when we struggle to see and experience this joy, it's because either we only see the suffering and pain in the moment or we're settling for fake joy. First, we only see the suffering and pain. Like this is the essence of depression, despondency, despair. You only see the dark clouds. You only feel the weight of despair. It's not that the joy is not there. Jesus says, no one can take this joy from you. If you have Jesus, you have joy. He's always there but we lose sight of him. And depression, despondency, despair can be so bad that sometimes we need professional help to help clear it away, to help us to see again. And that's okay, to see the presence of Christ. Sometimes it can even be physiological, like there's hormonal imbalances that are off and we need medical help for our physiology to get wired again correctly. And that's okay too. And for some, like probably all of us, like we all need more just brain health, you know, more sunshine, vitamin D, more rest, uh, eating better, exercising. All of that is part of Jesus helping us to live in such a way that we can more easily see him. Like sometimes it's not true spiritual depression. Sometimes you just need to take a nap. You're exhausted. Or it might not be that we can't see the source of our joy. It might be that we're settling for fake joy. So anytime we find great joy in the blessing, but it doesn't lead to worship and enjoyment of the one who has blessed us, we are settling for fake joy, shallow joy, temporary joy, circumstantial joy. Or sometimes, honestly, we're just settling for outright sin. We're finding a lot of joy in just sin and rebellion another version of fake joy. Every single human being on the planet, everyone in this room has to fight 
this settling of our hearts for fake joy. Settling for what is less satisfying than letting our enjoyment of the blessing lead us to true joy in the one who has and is blessing us. Like, so how do you know if you're settling for fake joy? Super easy self-assessment. Like, what are the things or people that give you the greatest joy in your life right now? And what happens if you wake up tomorrow and they're gone? You find great joy in your job. You like it. You're good at it. Other people think you're good at it. You're, you're paid well enough for financial security or even financial freedom. You wake up tomorrow and you're fired. Like I'm counseling a guy my age, maybe a little older, who's going through that right now. He showed up at work right before the holidays. He's fired without a job. Does it rock you? Yes. Is it sad, frustrating, painful, grieving? Yes. But does it destroy your faith? Does it cause you to run from God and not to God? Does it cause you to blame God and become embittered toward him? Does it lead you or does it lead you to trust and love him more? If we make the blessing our source of joy instead of a path to enjoy Jesus more, then when we lose the blessing, it could lead us away from Jesus and we become embittered against Jesus. Or we could see and enjoy Jesus as the source of joy and whatever good he brings into our life, we truly enjoy it for what it is. So if your team makes a playoff, great. If your team doesn't make the playoff, it's okay. There's always next year. I wonder how that's going to preach in Alabama, Texas, Florida, wherever today. We don't make it our, our source. We don't make the blessing ultimate And when it's gone, it's okay. We still have Jesus. He is our source. He will continue to be with me and bless me in other ways that are the right thing at the right time for my good and my joy. If we make the performance and our love of our kids too much a source of our joy, then when our kids don't perform or they don't reciprocate our love the way we want, then we're going to become embittered parents and we're going to lash out against them or we're going to withdraw from them and, and have a hard heart toward them because they're letting us down. You're supposed to make me happy. I made you. I brought you into this world. (laughs) Same thing for our spouses or those that we're trying to date and maybe we want them to be our spouse. If your spouse becomes a source of your joy, then when they're not giving you what you need or want for your joy, they're failing you and you're going to lash out or you become inward and bitter and hard toward them. They can't be that source. That's a terrible source of joy. Only Jesus can bear that weight and be a fountain of joy that never runs dry. And so when Jesus gives us kids, a spouse, or someone we're dating, or a job that we like, and it sometimes brings us great joy, great, enjoy it for what it is. But use that to enjoy Jesus more for this good gift. And when inevitably it lets us down, because everyone, everything will. It's okay. We still have Jesus. I would encourage you to go through everything in your life that brings you joy and happiness and evaluate it. Are you putting too much weight on that person or that thing? And are you mentally, spiritually, emotionally prepared for them or that thing to let you down? Because it will. And are you ready to run to Jesus again as your ultimate source of joy? It was the coming of Christ the angels said would be good news of great joy. 
Do we need help with this? Yes, like every single one of us would benefit from doing a joy inventory, especially during this season of so many temporary fleeting things that bring us so much happiness to ensure that we're not expecting too much from things or people who can't live up to our expectations. And thankfully, we have these last two verses. Jesus says we can pray and ask for his help in these ways. He says, you didn't ask me anything when I was with you because I was with you, but soon I'm going to be gone. You're going to have to ask these things in my name, in the Father's name. And your Father would delight for his people to see and experience this joy that we've been given in Christ. Like you want God to answer a prayer? Pray this. I pray, Jesus, Father, help me to fully see you all the time and to experience the joy that you said would never be taken from me, that never would depart from me, that would always be there no matter what I go through. To see and feel that Jesus is with us, in us, helping us in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Uh, The Gospel Coalition this week put out a new Christmas playlist and it's called Advent Longing slash Christmas Joy because they recognize that deep inside of us all there's this longing for the return of Christ to make all things new, to set all things right, to get rid of all the sorrow and suffering that we go through. But that doesn't mean we can't have Christmas joy in the midst of that. Yes, we can have both. Both can be present. It's been more of a battle for me over the last few years like never before. I've been, I was on a retreat earlier this year with James Sharp. I felt like I kind of had this breakthrough like, I, I felt like the Lord helped me to see the struggle I was having, like this overwhelming sense of failure that I won't go into, but rooted in all kinds of things. Um, that's causing me to only see gray clouds and not the good. Even though I had tons of people in my life, I was happy, I was fine, like most people wouldn't know. Tons of people in my life reminded me of the good things that were there, but I was struggling to see the good things. And talking to fellow pastors, talking to Jennifer, like the good was obvious, uh, but I was struggling to see it. Later in the summer, Jennifer and I, we took a day trip together. We were hiking and talking, and it dawned on me like this struggle to only see gray and not the joy was like some form of depression that I'd never experienced before. Um, in fact, I jokingly said, I'm not depressed. I'm just struggling with depression. She's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think this is a struggle. And um, my pride, like, wouldn't allow me to actually admit it. And God's been very kind to me, like, just having that conversation with her, continuing to talk about that with her, somewhat admitting that that was very healing and has really helped me to see uh, the joy of Christ again. But it continues to be a joy, a, a journey that I'm on a fight to see and enjoy Jesus in all things. That this Jesus, uh, this joy that Jesus is providing in himself. And as I was preparing this sermon this past week, I realized it's been harder lately. I don't know why. It just comes and goes, right? To savor this joy of Jesus. And I spent time walking through Psalm 42. So if you want to, you can turn to Psalm 42. This great psalm where David is struggling in these ways, struggling to find joy, struggling to see the reality of the presence of God with him, struggling for, for his own well-being, uh, some would call this spiritual depression. So a few things uh, that I quickly want to walk through that help me digest this psalm. And if you want to know more, I'll pass it along to you this week. You can reach out to me. Uh, but a few things in Psalm 42. So verse 1, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession into the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior, my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Six things real quick. First, he asked why in verse 9. Why have you forgotten me? Right after saying in verse 8, the Lord will send his faithful love by day and his song will be with me in the night, he says, why have you forgotten me? In other words, he knows God hasn't forgotten him because of verse 8, but he feels forgotten. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to ask that. We say things in the darkness that we know aren't true because we're trying to work through our feelings. That's all right. Give space for yourself to do that. Give space for others to do that. Secondly, he affirms God's sovereignty in his suffering. We see that in verse 8, verse 5 and 11, my salvation, my God. Verse 7, your breakers, your billows have swept over me. He knows God's ordained the suffering for him. So that we know darkness, chaos, suffering, and sorrow are not sovereign, only God is. Even in the struggle for joy, God is in total control and you are in his hand. Thirdly, he sings. We see this in verse 8. Not songs of joy or celebration, but songs of faith. Songs to help him believe what is true, like Brock and Molly read earlier. Like God gave us a songbook, the book of Psalms, filled with emotional validation that teaches us how to feel and how to sing even if we're struggling so much we can't sing. We hear a song of truth and it does something deep in our hearts that only music and truth can do. So we sing in our joy, we sing our lament and our sorrow. And when we can't sing, we have others sing over us. Fourthly, he preaches to his own soul. Verse five, why my soul? Soul, why are you so dejected? Soul, why are you in such turmoil? Soul, put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his book, Spiritual Depression, centered around this psalm. He wrote, have you realized that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, soul? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him, so he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Listen, self. If God is for you, who can be against you? He didn't spare his own son but gave him up for you. Will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Who will bring a charge against you as God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, 
who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Fifthly, he remembers past experiences. We see this in verse 4. He remembers, uh, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. The encounters with God in corporate worship, when the body of Christ gathers to worship, creates this history in our souls of God's power and presence that becomes a recording in our spiritual journey that we can keep going back to and remembering and enjoying. And then lastly, he thirsts for God. He doesn't pray against his enemies. There's other psalms for that. He doesn't pray for relief from his circumstances. Ultimately, he knows he needs more of God. And that becomes a source source of joy that can't be exhausted or quenched. So as we gather each week and proclaim Christ and sing about Christ in the gospel and pray for the work of Christ to be made fresh in us and spread through us to others, we get these weekly opportunities to be together and to share this and enjoy this. Yes, when we gather on Sundays, when we gather as mission communities, when we gather as DNA groups, anytime the body is gathered. And we get these opportunities to be reminded. And our job, specifically on Sundays as worship leaders, is to simply shine the light of Jesus and his gospel and to help us all see again, to be reminded. It's all true. He's still alive. He really did the things that he did. He really accomplished all that he said he would accomplish. And it's really alive and powerful and available to every single person in this room today. And for us to receive, for us to experience, for us to enjoy, and then for us to take to others. Others in our life who need this. This is why we share in this meal each week. This meal is a call to remember and a call to expect. Remember what Christ has done for us, sinful humanity. Remember what it means now that Jesus is our source of unity and joy now. And expect him to come again. And one day, we'll share in a forever feast, not in a world cursed by sin, but in an eternal kingdom full of joy. And so as we do each week, we invite you to come. If you're a baptized, repentant believer, follower of Jesus, come and grab a piece of bread, grab a cup, return to your seats, and we'll feast together. If you've not publicly professed faith in Christ through baptism, we'd ask you not to come, but let's have a conversation about what that needs to look like in your life. If you're not openly um, uh, trusting in Jesus, repenting of your sins, in other words, you know that you're a sinner, we all sinners, but you're like, I'm not really trusting in Jesus to help me fight sin. I just really want to indulge in sin and hide it from people. If that's where you're at, then we'd ask you not to come to examine yourself. But let's have a conversation. Like, let's walk through that. Why is sin more captivating to you right now than Jesus? But for the rest, come and receive and let's remember and enjoy Jesus again. So take a few moments. Listen to the Spirit. Speak to your heart. And when you're ready, come and receive the bread and the cup.